Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome. Welcome back. Yeah. Uh, my name is Martha Campbell, and I'm a lecturer at Berkeley. And for a long time, I've been involved in population issues and involved in also in the disagreements and the, uh, in, this, in this really sensitive field, which um, Sir John talked about also, and the population's impact on poverty, health, education, and the options that women need to have. When I was directing the population program in the David and Lucille Packard Foundation in the 1990s, I began to recognize how money can be used in different kinds of ways for making a very large change in health and in family planning in a human rights framework. And on that basis, I founded the nonprofit organization with the improbable name of Venture Strategies for Health and Development. This morning, Sir John Solston looked at the global picture on the relationships between population consumption and well-being. Now we are going to focus on Africa. This is the continent with the most rapid population growth and also many of the world's least developed countries, nations that cannot keep up with the rapidly growing number of children born each year and where women want but often cannot get contraception when they want it. We are fortunate to have with us now Dr. Elia Zulu. Two years ago, Dr. Zulu established a new and unique institution called AFDEP, the Af African Institute for Development Policy in Nairobi, Kenya. He is doing what we often talk about in the School of Public Health at Berkeley, turning, turning research into policy, actually translating research into policy for policymakers. It's a unique pattern of ways to work within a, a, a continent that needs help in many ways. Dr. Zulu, who was born in Malawi, is one of Africa's leading demographers. He has his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, and he has just completed his four years as the elected president of all of Africans' demographers. It's a great pleasure to have him here. Elia. Um, thank you, Martha. And uh, good morning. It's still morning, yes. Um, <laughs> so um, my talk today is going to uh, to build on uh, the you know a lot of what was said earlier on uh, in the in the in the presentation that uh, Sir John made, as well as uh, uh, what uh, Dollar uh, talked about, for the most part. And uh, basically, it's looking at uh, the issues of. Uh, the consequences of high fertility and population growth are looking at Africa as a special case. So what I'm going to look at uh, are basically mostly three things. Look at population figures, uh, the past and the future for Africa. Uh, look at the consequences of high fertility. And for that, I'm focusing on three main areas. Population is a cross-cutting issue. It, it kind of affects every you know, aspect of society, of development, and so on. So uh, you can actually have a whole day of, um, uh, uh, of discussions just on the implications of population growth. But I'm focusing on issues to do with urbanization, schooling, and, uh, and the extent to which the rapid population growth in Africa is affecting efforts to build the continent's human capital and maternal health. 
And then uh, I'll, I'll finish the presentation by offering some sort of uh, uh, ideas on what we need to do uh, in order to, to address this issue. Uh, first of all, starting with investment in education, empowering women, uh, clo uh, closing the funding gap and the service gap in family planning as well, which has been emphasized by uh, Ndola Prata, and um, also building and nurturing political will and commitment. So the dean, um, when he talked about you know, what has been happening, as well as uh, the last speaker in the, in, the, in the last panel, emphasized the issue about progress that is being made uh, in global health. And I think if you look at Africa, you can say that considerable Africa still has the highest level of mortality among all the you know, uh, major regions. But it has made considerable progress in reducing mortality. So if you take infant mortality, the number of uh, uh, deaths, uh, infant deaths out of 1,000 live births, it's gone from 180 to 71 uh, between 1950 and 2010. And life expectancy at birth has also gone up from 38 to 58. This is one of the you know, measures, uh, indicators that has been affected somehow by the HIV AIDS over the last two decades or so. But it has continued to go up. Um, but fertility decline has been very, very slow. It started very, very late, and uh, only in the last uh, 10, 15 years are we noticing that the, uh, the average number of births per woman is actually going down in the continent. So when we really talk about population, uh, population growth, uh, in a way, I think we, we have to emphasize the point that Africa's high population growth, to begin with, it's a consequence of progress in, in health outcomes. It's because mortality came down at the time when fertility stayed at, at a very, very high level. That's why we had this um, um, high population, uh, population growth. But it's the persistence of this gap between the birth, the, the, the birth rates and the death rates that has you know, put Africa in a kind of a special you know, a category as far as uh, rapid population growth is concerned. So uh, Sir John showed you uh, a map area on, uh, but that's the second one I'll show you. But if you just look at how you know, birth rates looked uh, globally in 19, uh, uh, around 1950, you see that the, you know, having more than a, a, a big families, more than five children per woman, was quite a global phenomenon. I mean, uh, the red there is showing the, the countries and the regions where, on the average, women were having more than five births. So that was in 1950. But when you come to, uh, to 2000, Africa is really the only region where this has remained um, an issue. So when we talk about Africa being a high-fertility continent, what are we really talking about? Which are the countries there that have very, very high uh, fertility? For the 52 countries that have data on uh, uh, total fertility rates at risk uh, in, the, in the last two to three years, you see that 24 of them actually have average birth rates or average number of births per woman of more than five. Uh, if you look at the other end, there are only actually nine, um, uh, there are only nine countries in Africa where birth rates are under under three, and these are mostly north uh, countries in, uh, uh, in 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 North Africa. But if you go back there in terms of the high fertility countries, the highest is Niger, 
at 7. Uh, Uganda, 6.7. You go to Mali, around 6.6, and so on. So the lowest you have is Mauritius, Tunisia, most of the countries in North Africa, although Mauritius is uh, uh, on the eastern uh, side. So what is really the implication of this? Uh, if you look at the United Nations uh, projections, the population of Africa was about 230 million in 1950. It grew to about, uh, the current population is just above 1 billion. This population is projected to grow to about 2.2 billion by 2050 and to 3.6 billion by 2100. Basically, if we follow this pattern, it means that the population of Africa in 2100 will be half of the global population of about 7 billion that, um, uh, that we have now. But so the issue about pop, uh, uh, the projections, the green charts here are looking at the actual numbers because it's the past. But uh, the, uh, is it orange? The, or the, the other color is looking actually at, uh, at projections. Population projections are mostly influenced by the two factors um, uh, of fertility and mortality. And uh, there's also migration. I didn't talk about migration. Migration in the context of uh, Africa as a whole, you wouldn't say that it has a big impact on the change of the population, although there's a lot, a lot of internal movements within the continent and within the countries themselves. But when you look at the future, it's mostly, it's mostly um, uh, the, the fertility rates that are going to determine how big the population of Africa will grow. So the chart that I just, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the projections I showed you right here are for the medium variant, where the total fertility of about 4.9 now is projected to go down to 2.1 by 2100. But if that doesn't go down, for instance, if, 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 if the continent does better than that and reduce it by about half a child to 1.6, that's what the UN calls the low variant. And the other one, the high variant, is just one ch half a child higher than uh, the medium variant. So basically you are seeing, um, according to the UN projections, a difference of one from high to low here. But these are the implications of that small difference. It's a, it's, it's a difference of just one child in total fertility over a long period of time. Uh, the red, the, the red uh, curve there is showing you the median variant, which I already talked about. But if, for instance, fertility goes down further uh, to about 2.6, it means that the, uh, the population for Africa will actually go to about 5.2 billion, as opposed to 2.4 billion if it's the lower variant. So I just want you to understand here the, uh, the, the importance of fertility, just even a small difference in fertility in long-term growth um, uh, of, uh, of population. So what are some of the consequences? Um, according to uh, two years ago, the world actually crossed one of the big milestones in terms of our population. Uh, the, uh, the global population became more urban than rural about two years ago. But it's projected that this milestone will take place in Africa around 2030, 2032, where there will be more people for the first time living in urban areas than in rural areas. So what, what this shows you is that the, the, actually the, urban, the, uh, the, the rural population will stabilize um, around, around, around 2035 and even start declining, while most of this growth in Africa 
will be happening in urban areas. And this will bring different sort of development challenges, health challenges, and so on. Uh, one of the things we need to note, I think a lot of people when we talk about urbanization, we tend to think that it's mostly people coming from rural areas. But I think data shows that you know, in developing countries, natural increase contributes about 60% of urban growth, while 40% is due to migration and reclassification. But in Africa, actually natural increase has a much bigger impact. People who are actually being born within, within, the, uh, within, within the urban areas themselves. And one of the consequences of this rapid urbanization is that there is now what we are calling urbanization of poverty, uh, where we are having, you know, quite high concentration of poverty in urban areas. And this is not just because of population growth, of course. There's also poor governance, poor planning. But what we are seeing now is that uh, the, the majority of people who are living in urban areas, in cities in Africa, are living in slum settlements. This is a pictorial look at Kibera slum, which is one of the biggest slums in Africa, where in that small geographical area there, over half a million people are estimated to live there. And what are the conditions in slums? There's congestion, uh, there's, uh, no, uh, there's, there's, there's no proper you know, uh, drainage system for water, no garbage collection, no toilet facilities, rising crime, you know, areas where, I mean, you look at Nairobi, uh, whenever there's an, a cholera outbreak in the city of Nairobi, it, it, it starts in the slums. And all these health effects are likely to affect other, other, other non-slum dwellers as well. So if the issue about slums was uh, maybe about small pockets of people here and there, one would argue that, okay, maybe it's not a big deal. But according to, to estimates from UN Habitat, about 62% of all urban dwellers in Africa live in slum settlements or slum-like conditions. This proportion has declined a little bit, uh, maybe thanks to some of the efforts by the Millennium Development Goals Framework and so on, from about 70% in 1990 to 62% in 2010. But because of the rapid urbanization, uh, which is fueled by the natural increase in population growth, actually the actual numbers of people living in slums has more than doubled during this period. And it's actually estimated that by about 2020, 2030, there will be over 370 million Africans living in slum settlements. What are some of the consequences of this? So this graph here is, 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 uh, uh, is, is, is from the slums of Nairobi comparing under five mortality in green and infant mortality in blue in the slums of Nairobi and other parts of Kenya. And if you compare just the blue charts, you see that in the slums of Nairobi, under five mortality, the number of children dying out of 1,000 live births by age five, by age, yeah, by age five is 151, versus 113 in rural areas. The same sort of difference for um, infant mortality. So you are having a situation where the continent is becoming more urban than rural in the next you know, couple of decades or so. And more, most of the people living in urban areas are actually living in slum conditions. And if these are the health outcomes that we are going to be seeing in slum conditions, it means that these, these, the, the, the health outcomes, the health indicators in the slum communities will actually increasingly shape the national health indicators in these countries. 
Another effect of high fertility is that uh, it actually creates youthful age structures where most of the people are young and high momentum for growth for the population. Excuse me. Um, so what you see here is the proportion of people in the total population in these parts of Africa. Globally, it's about less than 30 of the global population is under 15. Uh, in Northern Africa and Southern Africa, the only two regions which have low, uh, relatively low fertility, close to the global average in Africa, they have about less than 35%. But the other regions, between 40 and 45% of the total population is below age 15. I think that it's, uh, it's, it's fair to say, given this dominance of the young populations in Africa, that Africa's development prospects largely depend on how well the continent turns its predominantly young population into a quality and productive labor force. But the reality is that rapid population growth makes it difficult for governments to expand education systems fast enough even just to maintain the current standards, because the cohorts of children who are coming up to start school every year are incre increasingly bigger than the ones in the past. And um, also the Millennium Development Goals, you know, if you look at the MDG for schooling, it focuses on universal primary education. But I think you'd agree with me that for Africa to develop, we need to shift our focus from universal primary education to universal secondary education. Because it's at secondary level that we start seeing big effects in terms of health outcomes, that I think you can start seeing people who can, you know, be more pro, uh, who can contribute more to, uh, to, to economic productivity and so on. Uh, but the, the, the results even for universal primary education in Africa are quite discouraging. You find that some countries like Burkina Faso, for instance, 60% of girls aged 12 to 19 have never been to school. In northern Nigeria, if you look at women aged, uh, aged 15 to 49, 60% have never been to school. So the challenges are quite formidable. And another effect also of, uh, of, young, of young age structures, as I said, is that it creates high momentum for the population to grow. So what this chart is trying to show you here is that even if, uh, for instance, Kenya's total fertility now, uh, the, the average family size is 4.6, even if it dropped to 2.1, which is what in demography we call the replacement level fertility, that is the current generation is generating enough children just to repress itself. Even if this happened in eight years' time in 2020 in Kenya, it doesn't mean that the population will stop growing outright. It will grow for another eight years and stabilized at about, uh, from its current level, of about 40 million to close to 80 million. But if this, the attainment of replacement level fertility is delayed, say, and attained in 2080, it means that the population of Kenya would actually stabilize at around 180 million. This is a similar chart for Nigeria. So how fast? we get to replacement level fertility will affect the level at which uh, the, the total population will stabilize. Rapid population growth is also, is now you know, interlinked with, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, the environment and climate change. It's actually compounding effects of climate change. 
and undermining the capacity of communities to adapt to its adverse effects. Uh, the, the picture on the left here is showing you flooding that is actually ongoing in the Zambezi Valley in southern Africa, parts of, uh, parts of Malawi extending into Mozambique and so on. And this now is becoming a recurring sort of a situation. Every year or every other year, there's massive flooding. Um, on the other side, you see that some, there's also persistent droughts um, uh, around the continent, undermining food security and so on. So one of the things you are seeing now with climate change is that, for instance, uh, I was talking with a policymaker in Kenya last week at the uh, National Environment Agency who was telling me that one of the things they have observed is that in the past, the, uh, the drought cycles used to take about 20 years, in about 20 years, uh, 30 years ago. It reduced to 10 years. Now, every, uh, every other year or every two years, there's a serious drought. Um, they are changing disease patterns as a, result of, um, uh, 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 as a result of climate change. Some areas that never had malaria are now having malaria because of um, uh, global warming. But the point about the link with population is that because of the rapid growth of population, a lot of people are now are settling in marginal areas, in lowlands, and being hit quite hardly by things like flooding and so on. I think we all heard about you know, the big famine that was announced in the Horn of Africa a few months ago. 13 million people were actually in danger, or they needed food assistance in order to survive because of the massive drought in that area. The Sahel, this region that extends from West to East Africa, below the, uh, 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 below the Sahara Desert, it's, 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 it's extremely vulnerable to climate change consequences. But it's also an area where fertility rates and population growth is the highest, actually, in Africa. So people's capacity to build resilience, to adapt to consequences of climate change, are being increasingly undermined as, um, uh, as, as, as we face all these adverse consequences. For the Sahel, for instance, the population was about 20 million in 1950. It's projected to grow to about 200, between 250 and 300 million, depending on the fertility scenario that you look at by 2050. I think Dola you know, talked about this already, the impact of um, high fertility on maternal health and child health. Uh, it's estimated, as she said, that between 30 and 40 percent um, use of family planning, rather use of family planning and, re, uh, and, and reduction of high fertility would actually help avert 30 to 40 percent of maternal deaths. It's estimated that family planning can also help avert about 10 percent of child deaths. So high fertility is actually, you know, uh, uh, pro, uh, uh, trying to, uh, uh, is, is, high fertility is compounding poverty, compounding women's, um, uh, uh, women's well-being and so on. So I want to go a little bit into, uh, into trying to say how, how can we really address these issues. And I hope that by doing this, I'll also highlight what I, what, what I seen to be the main factors that are driving high fertility. So first, I think it's the issue that I mentioned. We need to end child marriages, keep kids in school, especially girls. Uh, in settings, like in most African settings, you get married at age 15, you start having children. It, 
you, you are less empowered to negotiate for use of family planning with your often much older you know, um, spouses and so on. This chart, is here, this chart here is showing the median age at marriage in, in these selected African countries. And I think as you can see here, there are about 29 countries there. In about 12 of them, half of the girls are married before age 18. And if you're if you getting married before age 18, basically it's go, you're going to have high fertility, but it also means you're dropping out of school. I think Dola also talked about the issue about unmet need for family planning. That in many, I mean, it, about 20 years ago, a lot of um, leaders, African leaders and so on, used to argue that, you know, Africans want to have many children. Let them have the children they want. Nobody should come and force them. But I think the data now has shown, data collected over the last 20 years has shown that the African women actually want to have fewer children. There's demand for family planning. What is failing, what is making them have more children is not that they want the many children, but it's because we are failing to meet their needs for family planning. So, for instance, it was estimated in 2008 that 78 million African women wanted to avoid pregnancy, but only 40% of them were able to use modern family planning. If you don't, if you don't have access to fam modern family planning, what happens? You have a lot of uh, mistimed births and, and, uh, and, and, and unwanted. So the orange here is mistimed births. The green is, um, um, is uh, unwanted. But even in Southern Africa, where fertility rates are much higher, you see that a country like Swaziland, 37% of the births were not wanted by, uh, by the women. The consequences are that you have also, unsafe abortion, Dollar talked about this as well. It's estimated that 6 million unsafe abortion happen in Africa, contributing 14% to maternal death. Another issue that we need to do is to increase donor and local funding for family planning. Malcolm talked about this. The orange bars here are showing you countries where per capita investment in family planning programs declined by over 50% between 1996 and 2006, and you can see that in Africa, Africa suffered quite a lot from there. Another thing we need to do is to strengthen health care systems, but more critically is to do what Ndola was saying, bring family planning to communities, demedicalize family planning, make communities take ownership of family planning, and um, finally we need to build political will. In Africa, I'm just wrapping up, yeah. In Africa, there's change, of course. There's uh, a lot of progress being made in, in some corners, but there are still a lot of leaders who are suspicious about the motives of family planning. There are a lot of leaders who are not committed. There are a lot of leaders who still think that they need big populations in order to develop. So this picture, I took it, uh, uh, was taken in Rwanda. In November, I was there to try to understand what Rwanda has done. Why Rwanda, a country that had this very unfortunate genocide in 1994, lost about 10% of its total population, could decide to prioritize use of family planning as its central development pillar. So the, uh, the, 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 uh, the president of the Senate basically told me we came to the conclusion that Rwanda cannot develop into a middle-income country, which is what they are aspiring for, without addressing rapid population growth. So look at Rwanda. The country has been committed. 
There's very, very strong political will, starting from the president, who has actually made all his ministers, mayors, and so on, use family planning as one of the performance indicators. And this is what we've seen in, in Rwanda. In 10 years, after this genocide, the percentage of women using modern family planning increased from 6% to 45%. If we focus on these five factors that I've mentioned, invest in women, keep girls in school, put money in family planning, and uh, bring family planning to the communities, the rest of Africa can witness this progress. Thank you. Thank you, Alea. And I would like to um, invite then now the uh, panelists to come to the um, to come to the podium right now. Here, come to the table. It's very helpful. There's one point I'd like to bring up that came up quite quickly, and I think a lot of people don't understand this. This little word reclassification between ur urban and rural. That a lot of the that most of the urbanization occurs because rural areas grow and be called they are called urban. It's not a matter of lots of migration. It makes a huge, huge difference to understand this. Um, I would like to now introduce our panel. Dr. Mara Decker, CEO, here we are. Um, there are. These are all leaders. All three of these are uh, leaders in different uh, centers of excellence known as COEs within the Global Health Institute. Dr. Mara Decker's, Decker's COE is developed, um, is devoted to women's health and empowerment. She is a lecturer at Berkeley, I'm happy to say, and at UCSF, she is the director of the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program Evaluation. Mara has worked in Bolivia, Kenya, and Angola. Dr. Catherine Dewey is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Nutrition at UC Davis. Um, she, her COE is called One Health, and she is a widely published expert on maternal and child nutrition. Dr. Mark Schenker, who is a physician, is the director of the UC Davis Center for Occupational and Environmental Health. He is the co-director of the COE on Migration and Health. Um, Mara, would you like to speak first? Thank you. Up. Can you turn I can up talk the, in the dark. I'm happy to, to begin. Um, I would like to just begin my comments first talking a little bit about the center of expertise on women's health and empowerment, and then secondly, following up with a couple key points that Dr. Zulu also mentioned. So first, the center of expertise of women's health and empowerment really believes that advances in women's health globally cannot be achieved without first addressing some of these fundamental issues of um, disempowerment and empowerment. So the, the impediments of poverty, limited access to education and economic opportunities, gender bias and discrimination, unjust laws and insufficient state access and accountability. And as you can imagine, going through the previous speech or speeches today, many of these same impediments uh, issues are directly impacting family planning and um, population. The mission of the Center of Expertise for Women's Health and Empowerment really is to address these causes of disempowerment, improve women's access to and control over resources, and to use improved access to resources and decision-making to achieve improved individual and community well-being and health. Some of the focus areas uh, tie in directly to what we're looking at today. Um, increased 
human rights, focusing on sexual and reproductive health and rights, and also improved reproductive health technologies. An additional point that we look at are environmental threats, which, as you can imagine, often impact the people who are most vulnerable. So looking at cook stoves and firewood, issues like that for women, but also, as Dr. Zulu mentioned, some of the issues around climate change. The most vulnerable often are the women who are living either in flood-prone areas or coastal areas and who are least able to adapt to those changes. Two of the main points of the, of the center is, first, to really address any of these, you need an interdisciplinary approach. So we bring not only the people from the health sciences, but also, also anthropology, sociology, and law to really try to address in a more comprehensive way both the research and the solutions. And also that these two issues truly are interconnected. You can't only look at empowerment or only look at health without realizing how much these two work together. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the main points that, that Dr. Zulu mentioned, this looking at Africa in specific, the youth population that is, that is here today. 90% of youth in the world today are in less developed countries. So not only the sheer number, but the percentage is really undergoing a huge shift. And by 2050, that percentage that is within sub-Saharan Africa is going to be even larger, while within developed countries, not only is the percentage declining, but the actual number of youth is going to be lower. So what can we do to really harness the potential and the energy and enthusiasm of these youth. One of the points that Dr. Zulu made is this real issue around child marriages. If you're getting married before age 18, for example, in Mali, over 70% of women are married by that age. And worldwide, um, over 15 million women are married by age 15. So that's 11% of women are married at that age. You can imagine the impacts that has, uh, that's the highest risk factor um, for death at that age in developed, developing countries is actually maternal mortality. Youth, by and large, are a very healthy population, but getting married young and having children very young increases your risk dramatically. It's also uh, one half of new HIV infections are among youth. And getting married young also directly correlates with increased total fertility rates. The longer you are in a childbearing situation, the more children you're going to end up having. Finally, there's this idea that marriage can be a protective place, but in reality, women who are in marriage at an early age are at increased risk of HIV than their single counterparts, are much less likely to have access to the contraceptive they need, are much less likely to be using contraceptive than their sexually active single counterparts. So in conclusion, just thinking about the synergistic effect of looking at empowerment and how it can really directly impact young women and young men's lives, what we can do to really make those changes. I'm going to end with a quote by Kofi Annan, that gender equality is more than a goal of itself. It is a precondition for meeting the challenge of reducing poverty, promoting sustainable development, and building good governments. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Um, well, I want to uh, just start by thanking my colleagues on the 10 UC campuses that are part of the Center of Expertise on Migration and Health. 
Um, this is a group, many of whom are here today, uh, working on this issue and aspect of global health. And I also want to thank Haile DeBoss and the Global Health Institute, who actually helped bring us all together and harness this enormous energy on all 10 campuses. I'm going to make a few general comments on migration and its impacts on health, and then uh, specifically focus on Africa and some of the issues that have been brought up. The first comment is that migration has been and will continue to be a natural phenomenon for all living species. It is a nature of our planet. Um, and uh, that goes from the original movement of humans out of Africa to the current manifestations of migration in the world. One-seventh of the global population is migrant. One-seventh. Uh, this is a very large number and uh, we need to think about this in the health context. The second is that the major causes of global migration are likely to increase in the future, and we've heard some about that. So environmental change, the drought in the Horn of Africa, flooding, uh, these phenomena around the world are moving people to other locations. Uh, political change, and this, of course, has affected Africa as well as other parts of the world where we see regime changes and other uh, migrations of uh, political uh, nature that are uh, forcing people to become refugees. And then finally, the largest uh, mover is the demographic and economic disparities in the world. And when we talk about uh, population growth, hand-in-hand uh, hand with that is the economic disparity that is going to push those people to moving to areas of more economic resources uh, where they can survive uh, better. Um, next is that migration has many impacts, but a lot of these on health are negative. Uh, and that is not just in the destination locations, but also in the countries of origin. We see impacts of migration on the health of the population, and certainly in the transit. Uh, the movement of people uh, is hazardous. It has negative health consequences. Um, and, and just to mention a few of these, mental health isn't uh, brought up a lot, but the mental health, the stress, the impacts on uh, migrant families or when part of the family is moving is enormous and is an enormous global health issue. Infectious disease is the traditional domain of migration and health and remains an issue to be thought about. Uh, but we need to think about chronic diseases. Uh, and from my own work, for example, we see that uh, Latin women coming to the United States increase cigarette smoking fourfold. The impact on their chronic disease uh, outcomes is going to be enormous from just that change alone. Occupational health is another area, and so on. So all of these are intertwined with the movement of people and need to be thought about. Our social protections for health are deficient for immigrant populations, particularly in the area of public health, where we see lower vaccination rates, lower prevention, uh, lower environmental quality, uh, and, and so on. But then also in health care, uh, migrants tend to have lower access, lower resources, and lower uh, benefits from health care systems. 
So we need to shift the paradigm away from what used to be the approach to migrant populations, which was sort of exclusionary. We're going to isolate these people. We're going to quarantine them. We're going to check for disease. Um, to one in which we're reducing these inequities, that we recognize this is a phenomenon that exists. Um, that we put in place social protections for health, that we reduce risk factors uh, in this population, and that we bring up the overall health level. And it needs to have a population focus, not just an individual focus to, to make this effective. So how do we do this? Well, we need new operational frameworks that recognize migrant populations as a population of greater need in this regard. We monitor health in migrant populations. We change our health care system so that they're sensitive to the needs of migrants, unlike excluding migrants, as unfortunately we often see. Um, we change policies, and importantly, that we do this in a multinational context, not just in the receiving countries where we say, oh, how do we deal with our migrants here, but we deal with it bilaterally or multilaterally to ad address the problem. So let me briefly look at Africa just to make a few points. Um, Africa, of course, is a country of origin for migration to developed countries. There are about something over a million black African immigrants in the U.S. It's only 3% of our immigrant population, but it's the fastest growing group. And a lot of these are, again, political refugees, one of the drivers of, of migration. Um, but interestingly, the other point to mention is the remittances. And remittances from African migrants in other countries is almost $60 billion per year, which is greater than the gross domestic product of 39 countries in Africa. So this gets at the complexity of this whole migration and health picture um, and something that needs to be taken into account to think about it. Now, there's also transnational migration within Africa, and, and that totals almost 20 million people in Africa who are living outside their countries of origin. A lot of this, again, is economic-driven, but also environmental and political, uh, moving this type of movement. About half of these migrants are women, and that needs to be recognized. In fact, if we look globally at migration, about 40% of, of global migration is between countries in the southern hemisphere. It's not southern hemisphere just to northern hemisphere developed countries. A large, almost half the global migration is within the southern hemisphere, such as the example in Africa. Um, so... Let's just a couple of health issues related to this. Um, certainly HIV, which has been talked about, and malaria have been looked at, and the impact of migration on spreading those disease, uh, diseases. And that's a very real example. But I would suggest there's been little work on other health problems associated with migration, and we need to do this better. We need to look at the, the impact of migration on a whole range of these other outcomes I've been mentioning. Um, and um, then, so finally, we need to develop modern approaches to 
recognizing and addressing the health of migrant populations and their impact on health. The old method, the exclusionary method, the quarantines just is not appropriate or even possible. Uh, and this certainly applies in Africa where we've heard in the presentations about drought, we've heard about rural urban uh, migration and certainly the impacts uh, in those slums, which is where most migrants are going to end up when they do move in that situation. Uh, and then I want to just finish with another quote from Kofi Annan. He's becoming the Yogi Bear, I guess, of global health uh, quotations. But <laughs> Kofi Annan uh, said, we now understand better than ever that migration is not a zero-sum game. In the best cases, it benefits the receiving country, the or country of origin, and the migrants themselves. And I think that's the way we need to think about this, not as a burden, not as uh, an unfortunate transient state, but a natural phenomenon that exists and that can be of benefit uh, within its cycle to everybody affected. So thank you very much. Catherine. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. First, I'd like to thank both of our plenary speakers this morning for stimulating uh, a lot of thinking about these really broad and important issues. Um, I am involved in the One Health Center. I'm not one of the co-directors. They could not be here today. Um, but I, I was asked to come and tell you a little bit about that. Um, this is a center that has a very broad uh, interest in the... Um, interacting multiple causes of poor human and animal health uh, globally that includes things like unsafe and scarce water, lack of sanitation, food insecurity, and malnutrition, and infectious diseases. And uh, this is the, what we call the foundations of uh, health, which Sir John referred to in his slide as the infrastructure. And it's a very ambitious way of looking at how to tackle these problems because they seem almost too much to cope with, but uh, I think we would argue that we have to look at them simultaneously if we're going to make progress at addressing the, the huge issues in front of us. Uh, I'm also wearing a second hat today. I'm the director of the program in international and community nutrition at UC Davis, and I want to just give one example of how some of the work that we do uh, feeds into the population issues that were raised this morning. And that has to do with uh, the issue of, of number of children or family size and the important uh, role of child mortality uh, in affecting those kinds of decisions. So the example was given this morning about the woman in Niger whose children are starving and then um, she's having another baby. And one of the reasons she's having another baby is because her children are starving and dying. So when half of your children die, you need to have more children to make up for that. Uh, and so I want to give the example of how infant feeding and infant nutrition are an important part of how we tackle that. If we reduce child mortality, in essence, we reduce the demand for large families. Um, breastfeeding is one of the critical pillars of that in, in several ways. Uh, for example, in the first six months of life, if a baby is exclusively breastfed, which is the global recommendation, they're much less likely to die. If they're not breastfed, they're 14 times more likely to die. And if they are partially breastfed, they are three, more, three times more likely to die in the first six months. One uh, particularly uh, salient a new finding, relatively new finding, is that 
the initiation of breastfeeding within the first hour after birth is a critical determinant of neonatal mortality. Uh, in, there are some studies from uh, Ghana and Nepal indicating that neonatal mortality, which is deaths in the first month of life, could be reduced by 20% if all babies were put to the breast within the first hour. Now, that's a huge impact because uh, currently, of all deaths under five, neonatal deaths make up 41%. So this means a million ba- approximately a million babies per year uh, that could be affected by uh, universal initiation of breastfeeding within the first hour. So there's other ways that breastfeeding plays into this because it also improves nutrition of the child, which has its own further effect on mortality subsequently. And uh, other infant feeding practices that occur after that first six months are also critical in ensuring child survival and health and development. The other way that it works is that breastfeeding can uh, play into birth spacing because of the suppression of of amenorrhea uh, in women who are not uh, using contraceptives. This could be an important part of uh, birth spacing. So that's just one small example, but those of us working in this domain believe that nutrition really is at the crux of uh, both uh, the population issues that we're facing, the global health issues that we're facing, and economic development as well, because improved nutrition in the first two years of life has been demonstrated to lead to greater wage earnings among uh, males later and a great, greater school performance among females in particular. Uh, so one uh, message I'd like to leave you with is that we need to pull these all together and work uh, jointly to address the issues that we are all concerned about. Uh, And there are some good examples of that occurring already. Uh, For example, uh, there's a trial being led here, a couple of trials being led here by UC Berkeley uh, called the WASH Benefits Study funded by the Gates Foundation, uh, which is uh, started out as an intervention in two countries, Bangladesh and Kenya, to improve water, sanitation, and hygiene through a variety of, of means. Um, thinking through the issues where the outcome here was child health and child stunting, uh, it was recommended that they consider adding nutrition to that project. And so those of us at UC Davis were brought into that project to work together to to have these uh, addressed at the same time. Another example is addressing infectious diseases and nutrition simultaneously. We're actually currently working in Malawi uh, to uh, examine that both during pregnancy and in early childhood. And a third example that I think is necessary for intersectoral collaboration is nutrition and agricultural development. Uh, too often, agricultural development specialists focus on productivity, yields, calories, just how much food is out there, and not the quality of that food and the nutritional adequacy for these particularly vulnerable groups. So with that, I would like to thank the organizers for inviting me and um, hope that we'll have some vigorous discussion this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. It's time for us soon to go and have lunch. Just, but I'd like to have leave some time for a couple of questions. And first, I'd like to make a couple of comments. Also, we have um, we have good evidence. There, there is a correlation, of course, um, between more lower mortality. And, um, and smaller family size. But there is also a lot of causal relationship in the fact that what is really, it's not a prerequisite 
um, to have mortality come down first before family size comes down. What is prerequisite for lower fertility is, in fact, women's ability to be able to manage whether and when to have a child. We're dealing with this all the time, and it's very interesting subjects and very interesting discussions going on, in both in the Bixby Center at Berkeley and in Venture Strategies for Health and Development. And let me pull together just a few threads here on these two plenaries. Rapid population growth is a, re- is a reality. Uh, 83 million more births than deaths every year on this planet. It is like a new Germany to squeeze into our already crowded planet in the next 12 months. Um, There were 29,000 more births than deaths since we opened this meeting this morning. Nearly all of this growth will be in the least developed countries of the South. Most of the climate threat and the loss of nature's services comes from overconsumption in the North. A child born today could grow up in an increasingly hungry, conflict-ridden world with irreversible destruction of our common, fragile environment, which, in fact, we need to preserve for tomorrow's children. Or that child could grow up in an increasingly peaceful world with a little poverty, with little poverty, and increasing human well-being in a biological, sustainable economy. As Indola showed us, there is a large unmet need for family planning, and we know how to respect and help women to have family size that they want. Uh, the needed investments and the policies need to be made policy, uh, possible um, must start largely in the north. I want to thank Sir John and Dr. Zulu, the panelists, for making this case in all its complexity. And this is the second time the Global Health Institute has been a sponsor of this type in the Bay Area meeting. I hope there will be many more such meetings, but I think it was appropriate that the goal of this meeting was to put population and voluntary family planning center stage in any global health activity. I hope we have succeeded. And now we need, uh, let's have a couple of um, questions, and, um, and after that, then we'll need the logistics for feeding 450 people in the north. In, in for lunch, but would you? Would, are there a couple of questions? So somebody like to ask something? Uh, a fairly yes, please go ahead. So let me just ask. Can you panel. put it on the microphone? microphone? Yes, that would be very nice. <clears throat> Hi, Michael Drake from UC Irvine, and just uh, to the panel, I'm curious about the chicken and egg relationship between uh, family size and education, and what you'd like to say about that. I think you're exactly right. The chicken and egg uh, works perfectly. And you can see this both in in other countries, but also in our own country. Um, One of the projects I work on is in California. And while there certainly is a very strong association between um, teenage pregnancy, for example, and people who don't graduate from high school, there's also now further understanding that many of the people who didn't graduate from high school were those who were most likely to get pregnant early on. So there's definitely a chicken and egg. That said, in just about any country you go to, the higher the education attainment, even from no, nothing to primary level, secondary and beyond, you'll see that stair-step association with, with um, childbirth. So the longer that a, chi- a, a girl especially is able to stay in school, the, the lower her fertility will be. Elia? Oh, can, can I just... Hello. Yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, I think, yeah, I think that the evidence uh, on the ground uh, drawn from both Asia and Africa as well is that uh, education tends to uh, to to be very very helpful in uh, influencing, say, contraceptive use, reducing fertility in in contexts where 
family planning is not widely available. So if, if, if the women have to hunt for it, uh, 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 access to information, you know, helps a lot. So you see that even the, uh, the, the, the education advantage is much bigger in countries where contraceptive use is not widely available. But evidence from Nigeria, I mean, you're looking at Rwanda now, all these African countries that are making progress, Malawi is one you know, of the uh, levels of education among the least uh, in Africa. But f- 45% of women are using contraception and so on. So when contraception is more widely available, there's a diffusion effect as well where women you know, look at other, even non-educated women can use it. So I think the choice, a lot of people tend to come up and say, okay, educate women and women will decide on their own to, uh, to limit their fertility and so on. But the evidence is that if you actually educate women uh, with you know, information about family planning, the need to, uh, to, to take charge of their reproduction, if you invest in that and make family planning widely available, both educated and uneducated women take charge of their reproduction. Is there one more um, question here, or shall we go on? Um, Thank you very much, um, Chancellor Drake. What I'd like to do then is suggest that we all go to International House in a large crocodile, which is a lovely analogy used in Britain, and and to walk up to International House. I understand that there is a very good lunch up there, and then we will come back here. uh, There are posters to see, and, and then we'll come back here at the appointed time. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.